So welcome. Uh, if you weren't here the first week, you haven't met Reverend Matthew Wright yet. Hi, Deborah. Who is uh, uh, the priest at St. Gregory's Episcopal Church down the road. Who here is from St. Gregory's? Uh, so glad you're here. Um, and last week, Reverend Suzanne Guthrie was teaching with me, and, and Suzanne is right over there. Um, we have a syllabus, which I handed out last week, which gives us the, you can pick one up afterwards, gives us the template to not follow the rest of the time, okay? But it's a good syllabus, and we'll, we'll be he adhering to it in, in our way. Yeah, the, the, as we discuss topics from week to week, you know, everything that we're going to talk about, they're like strands of a spider web, and if you tug on one, it tugs on everything else. So it's going to be hard, you know, when we have a topic like Bible, that's, it'll lead us into some other topic that's planned for three weeks later, and so we'll just adjust as we go right. uh, along. Right, and as with any intro course, we have an assumption that some people here might not know anything about the subject. So there are no questions that are considered uh, um, uh, wrong, inappropriate. inappropriate. For those with a greater base of knowledge, thanks for your patience. It never hurts to hear the basic stuff again. And as with any intro course, you don't, you're going to have giant gaps in the picture until later in the course. So you just have to like hang with that. Right? You have to relax and know that when you're trying to put a picture together, a put jigsaw puzzle together, in a, like in any course, it takes time. So you pick up what you can, and slowly a picture comes into focus that you can then start to uh, play with. So we all have to be patient when we're taking a course together. I have learned. And we, we really want to talk about what you want to know about, and so we want to keep it a very organic... That's what this list was. Yeah, was just, right, right. So that's, we gathered things everyone was interested, but we want to keep it a really organic process where you're asking questions and engaging throughout the presentation, so it'll unfold uh, right. as we all will it to, not as we've necessarily planned it to. Right, this syllabus was built from the first class when we asked what you want to know, and then we wrote down all the questions, and then I wove it together into a nice structure. So the topic for today is comparing our Bibles. And uh, that's a big subject, right? So why don't we, uh, so we're, I have some, I have a list here of all the books in both of our Bibles, which I'll be able to pass around to you. And I think, before we do, um, let's talk about what Jews mean when we say the Bible and what Christians mean when they say the Bible. Um, so, you start. Oh, thanks, Jonathan. So, uh, when Christians say the Bible, what do we mean? Well, it probably depends on the kind of Christian you're talking to and probably also depends on the kind of Jew you're talking to. But... Uh, Within the tradition I'm a part of, we understand the Bible to be essentially a library. The Bible isn't a book, it's a collection of books, a collection of uh, a wide variety of genres of books. So there's history and poetry and letters, um, 
all woven together. So it's, it's a mixed bag in many ways. Uh, in the Christian tradition, we have, of course, the Hebrew scriptures, which traditionally Christians have called the Old Testament. Um, Christians today are shying away from that because it sounds a bit pejorative. Uh, so we tend to speak now more about the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew scriptures. Um, then there's the New Testament writings, collection of uh, stories about Jesus, four Gospels, which are accounts of the life of Jesus, then a collection of epistles or letters, um, which were written by early Christian communities, and uh, one book called The Acts of the Apostles, which tells the story of, or stories of Jesus' apostles as they went out spreading the Christian gospel. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the... Well, and then the other bit is that we also have a section of books called the Intertestamental Books, or the Apocrypha. Um, the Episcopal Church recognizes these books and has them in our Bibles. Most Protestants don't. Uh, Catholic Christians, Orthodox Christians, Anglican Christians do. And it includes books like First and Second Esdras, Tobit, Judith, First uh, and Second Maccabees. So these are books that, that were written in between the writing of the two testaments, essentially. Um, Anglicans read them in worship, read them uh, in daily prayer, but don't formulate doctrine based on them. So they're given a sort of devotional place in between the other two chunks of scripture. So here's the most basic question. Why are they called, until recently, the Old Testament and the mm -hmm. New Testament? I think that's a question many people have. Right, right. Or, or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That what does the, testament mean? Yes. Or covenant, essentially. could be translated okay. either way, I think. Uh, the idea was that there was the covenant made with the Jewish people, and then Jew Jesus initiates a new covenant that opens that to include Gentile folk as well, and so a new covenant is initiated. Um, of course, a lot of Christian theology uh, really pre-Holocaust was dismissive of the prior testament and covenant as kind of outdated, uh, that, that the Christian covenant had superseded the Jewish covenant. Uh, Christian theology, thank God, post-Holocaust has worked to really rewrite itself and to see both as uh, ongoing streams of revelation that both have a continuing place in the human family. Uh, but, but yeah, there's a, an edge of that that remains in languaging it old. Since the Holocaust, there has been a really amazing sea change in much Christian theology. Remember the Second Vatican Council 50 years ago basically threw out the old model mm -hmm. of Jews being a despised remnant who existed only to show what happens to people who don't accept the new covenant. Does that make sense, everybody? Which was the essentially the foundation of Christian anti-Semitism. Keep them around, but keep them in a debased state to show that uh, they are the, that's what happens when you don't get with the program. But the Second Vatican Council transformed that. It was called Nostra Etate and called Jews our elder brothers, shall we say siblings now, 50 years later. Um, our elder brothers and have, there's been a real attempt to restructure, not just in the Catholic Church, but in other, other, other streams as well, that relationship. That does, but of course, 1900 years of tradition die hard. So uh, it's not like a decree was made and 
everybody said, okay, good, now you're our older brothers. But, is that an accurate way of saying it? Yeah, that's, that's a good way of saying it. Nostra Atati also uh, had statements that were very affirmative and respectful towards uh, Islam as well. Right. Uh, recognizing the Islamic people. So it, it was a huge sea change, and in many ways, the tradition hasn't caught up with itself in making that change. Yeah. True. Um, so, uh, what do we mean when we say the Hebrew Bible? It's not just the five books of Moses. It's known as the Tanakh, which is an acronym. So what I want to do is pass around these sheets so that... Both? Yeah, let's do both. They are a little redundant. It goes fastest uh, if we pass and we... Anyway, I get some exercise. Oh, we can talk about that. Yeah, ask that question. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, we beat them by 12. <laughs> right? So you, we beat them by 12. Here's the second one. It's coming around right there. Yeah, it's almost there. That's all right. Oh, it's coming it's working. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's fine. Okay. Which one do you need? Great. Does everyone have two sheets? Hey, I'm out of the, the legal size sheet, so share with somebody. So you have an eight and a half by 11 and a legal size. Okay. <clears throat> Let's look at the legal size sheet. Oh, good. Here's some more. Anybody else need? <coughs> they turned up. All right. Okay. Straight off of Wikipedia. Um, no, no, it was a different site. Um, no, no, I don't remember what it was. Sorry, I should attribute. Um, look on the left-hand column where it says Hebrew Bible. So one of the first things to know about the Hebrew Bible and about the Christian Bible, it's very important, is what Matthew said, is that it doesn't come from book, 
it comes from the Greek biblioteca, which means library. Right? So, when did the Bible start being a book? When books were invented. Right? And you could print them up, and, or before printing, a codex, which was an advance over a scroll, because a scroll you couldn't index, but think of your index finger, but a book, you could put your finger there. You could say and, page one, two, three, four. And then turn, and it was like an incredible advance in information technology. And they lost it in e-books. <laughs> uh, no, no, they didn't. They improved the search. Uh, it's a matter of question. Yeah. Oh, right, okay, okay. <laughs> but anyway, so until codexes were invented, which were the initial books, the Bible was a, was a collection of scrolls, right? That's how books, that's how a sefer means a scroll. That's why it's called the sefer Torah, the Torah scroll, but it also a sefer in Hebrew means a book. So we have to retroject back to when these were collections of scrolls and they weren't found in a single volume, right? So we think of the Bible as a book, which it has been for hundreds of years, but that's not what it was originally. Originally it was a library. A library of literature that was determined to be sacred. Who made the determination? Uh, these are great questions. Um, I was just rereading my favorite, one of my favoriteest recent books on schol of scholarship on this, called, which we've studied here, called Scribal Culture and the Making of the Hebrew Bible. So I was just boning up on um, Carl van der Torn's uh, um, theories which he's un incredibly convincing. I love con people when they're convincing me. Um, so, the, so you need to know that it's a uh, collection of books and that the Hebrew Bible is a collection of books in three sections called, if you look on this left-hand column, Torah, that's the first section, Books of Moses, right? Nevi'im, and here the Nevi'im are in the former and latter categories, but there are one section called Nevi'im, which means prophets, <coughs> and the last section called Ketuvim. So that Jews typically refer to the Hebrew Bible by an acronym, using the first letter of each of these three sections. Tanakh, right? Tanakh, it's not a word, it's an acronym. That makes sense, everybody? When Jews talk about the Bible, they don't say the, they say the Tanakh, which is the Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. It's also known as Mikra, which means scripture. That means, that's a fancy word. Scripture now means like something special. Uh, mikra, it doesn't mean, this is really interesting. Everybody, what does kara mean in Hebrew? To read. It really means to read aloud. And so mikra is that which is read aloud. So that's also, uh, that, it's also uh, read in public, read aloud. That's also where it comes from, mikra. The, yeah, you want to say something? Well, no, go ahead. I, I, I was just going to jump in and say you, you'll see, obviously, that Christians structure the Hebrew scriptures differently. We order them differently. So whereas there's Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, Christians tend to divide it, not tend to, do divide it, law, Pentateuch. Pentateuch, that's from the Greek. So uh, 
the Christian version of the Hebrew Scriptures came from what was called the Septuagint. So it was the version of the Hebrew Scriptures used by Greek-speaking Jews. And that was what Christians initially inherited. So the, the format of the Christian Scriptures actually comes out of the Septuagint, this Greek version that was in circulation. Um, and so Pentateuch is essentially the, the, the Greek word for, well, five, five, five books. books. Right, for Torah. Uh, then you get the historical books. So these are books that tell the history of the Hebrew people. Then wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Um, and you could also say wisdom slash uh, poetic books there. And then the prophets are grouped together as the final section of the Hebrew scriptures. And, and some people have argued that this was done, that there was a sort of literary intention in shifting the order. So you see prophets are, are central in the Torah. They're the, the middle section of the, of the text when it's combined together as a whole. Then they're moved to the end within the Christian canon. And the idea was that the prophets were seen as pointing to Jesus. So this is how Christians sort of reread them as the prophets are pointing towards our hope which we find in Jesus. And so it moves to the end of the canon and really changes the way it's read. So there was a kind of literary game going on there. And Christians restructured the order of the Bible in order to make their point, okay? Which is that the old covenant presages the new one. Mm -hmm. And that the prophecies in the books of the prophets, the oracles, the speeches the prophets made, are predicting the arrival of Jesus. Right? That is the Christian idea of what's going on. And so, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with a Christian who, uh, a particular kind of Christian, who is preoccupied with how, how all the hundreds and hundreds of ways that the prophetic books of the Torah, of the Tanakh, predict the arrival of Jesus. And they will, they will quote chapter and verse. Look, here's what it says. Clearly, that's predicting the arrival of Jesus. Never is, now, never is it mentioned, Jesus mentioned by name in the books of the prophets. They are understood, but for, for many, many, many believing Christians, those prophecies are understood to be undoubtedly predicting the arrival of Jesus and Jesus' life and Jesus' mission in the world. Wouldn't you say that's accurate? Yeah, I would say that's how it has traditionally been read. Absolutely. And there has been a shift in contemporary um, mainline Protestant scholarship to say, let's get honest with ourselves here and, and, and see that early Christians, as they were reading the life of Jesus, early Christians, of course, were Jews, and so they were looking for meaning within the scriptures of their tradition, and so they read Jesus in light of those scriptures, read those, read those scriptures in light of Jesus. Um, and uh, I think that traditional Christian way of reading them is still important for Christians. We find meaning in those passages, and we see Jesus there, um, because, of course, that's the matrix he emerged out of. Uh, but I think it's, there's a movement towards saying, that's not the only way to read those scriptures, and it wasn't the original way they were read. It's a form of midrash. Yes, it's a form of midrash. That's which a good way not, of saying which it. Which is not true. Um, so uh, that's important for us to acknowledge. Right. Uh, and it's, it is 
slowly shifting, and there's, again, it's a part of that post-Holocaust sea change. This course is called Judaism and Christianity, Shared Origins, Different Paths. So we're speaking from a, I'd say both of us, from what you'd call a postmodern perspective, uh, where we're very, we're very modern clergy in that we're not attached to our truth being the only way of interpreting the universe. Right? That's why we can sit here and talk together. Right? If we were of the ilk that feels like, really, this is the only way to do it, and I'll tolerate your presence, uh, that's not dialogue. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, I'm all for tolerance, though, believe me. I'll take it, if you follow what I'm saying. But this, so, so for many, many centuries, these were competing versions of the truth. Right. Right? And there were disputations throughout the ages over which was the true, in the true version that we're supposed to be following. I, um, those who know me, and obviously you can tell from Matthew, we have no interest in playing that game. Um, we're much more interested in the truths of each of our traditions, which is why we can have this conversation. So early Christianity those people were Jews who were interpreting their sacred texts in the light of their experience of Jesus. Right. And so Christians, I don't, you know, I'm never going to read the suffering servant passage in Isaiah and not see Jesus there. Tell us about the suffering but, servant passage. So, so there's a wonderful passage in uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah where he describes uh, what is called in Christian lingo the suffering servant. And it's one who suffers on behalf of others, who bears their burdens and bears their sins. Is it 53? 53, yeah. So Jesus, having been crucified by the Roman Empire, they read him in light of this passage. They said he was bearing our burdens, uh, bearing our sufferings, and there was something transformative in that. Uh, a traditional Jewish read of that passage would be to say, well, the suffering servant is Israel, is the us, Jewish all of us. people. Um, and... For me, I can see both of those resonances and say both are true. Um, but I wouldn't say, well, I shouldn't read Jesus into it. No, I can. That's how an early group of Jewish folks who were searching for meaning after the death of Jesus read it. So it's just as valid, but it's to, to get away from the idea that it's the only way to read it. Right, the suffering servant. Just one sec. So here's one translation of it. Uh, uh, where do you usually start? At no. the beginning of the, here's chapter 53. Yeah, 53, I would say it's probably right there from the beginning. Uh, who can believe what we have heard? Upon whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he has grown by his favor like a tree crown, like a tree trunk out of arid ground. He had no former beauty that we should look at him, no charm that we should find him pleasing. He was despised, shunned by men, a man of suffering, familiar with disease, as one who hid his face from us. He was despised, we held him of no account, yet it was our sickness that he was, our sickness that he was bearing, our suffering that he endured. We accounted him plagued, smitten and afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our sins, crushed because of our iniquities. He bore the chastisement that made us whole, and by his bruises we were healed. We all went astray like sheep, each going his own way, and the Lord visited upon him the guilt of all of us. 
So it, it goes on. We can stop there. You get the idea. You get the idea. And you see Sounds this early group of, of Jewish followers of Jesus. He's been crucified. They're trying to find meaning in this horrible death. And they read this passage and they go, oh, this makes sense of it. This provides meaning to something that otherwise is utterly horrible and horrific. Meanwhile, Isaiah was writing, this is 2nd Isaiah, perhaps in the 5th century or 6th century BCE. So these writings are 500 years old when you, at the time of Jesus. When you take them in context, historical context, and you read the rest of Isaiah's preachings, he's preaching to an exiled remnant of Jews in Babylonia that they're going to return and that their sufferings will, um, will turn out to have been worthwhile because they will be brought back into their land. So when you read Isaiah in its historical context, it is a very reasonable guess that that's the metaphor that this, this prophet was referring to. Does that make sense, everybody? Um, but he speaks in metaphors and allegories, and so uh, it's ripe for, the, ripe for usage. For the that's what makes it not an historical document, but a religious heritage. So let's take a few questions. We'll go around. Yes? Were those early Christians who were Jews, mm-hmm. did they call themselves Christians? Did, was there a kind of a separation? Yeah, so, so initially... And, so, and did they follow Jesus? Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, uh, the, what we see in, say, the Acts of the Apostles, which is the story of the disciples going out on their initial sort of missions, uh, they're described as followers of the way. So they're not at this point even called Christians. Um, they're followers of the way, the way taught by Jesus. Um, it seems that it was actually a, a sort of, uh, what would the, the a derogatory term that others applied to them, Christians. They were little Christ. They followed this guy that they called the Messiah, and, and eventually they sort of, you know, took it on. It's, it's like uh, any kind of uh, slur word than being taken on by the, per- the oppressed person and then kind of reclaimed and transformed. Happens all the time, but I didn't know that about Christians. Uh, that's, that's what a lot of stars will say, that it was originally this sort of slur, you know, they were uh, these we Christians. Christian. Right, so they didn't claim, they didn't create the name, it was given to them and then they sort of owned it. So is this after Paul? Um, it's all during that window of time where a separate identity starts oh, I emerging. Think, I think you should give a very brief timeline of first century. Okay. When um, would Jesus have been alive? When would Paul have been alive? So we don't, of course, know exactly when Jesus was born or exactly when he was crucified, um, but based on hints in the scriptural record that link him to the time of Pontius Pilate, um, King Herod, these are markers that we can sort of identify historically. Um, traditionally, the year zero was when we would say Jesus was born. Some scholars think it was more like um, the year 3 uh, BCE, um, and he would have died sometime roughly around the year 30. And this is assuming a 30-year timeline, that he was roughly 30 when he died. Um, again, there's conjecture in there, but um, born roughly around 0, died roughly around 30. Paul's preaching mission picks up in the 50s and 60s, so 20 years later. Um, mm-hmm. So, and Paul, for those of you who, who do or don't know this, this guy, he was a, a, a Pharisee, a Jew, 
who studied according to the Acts of the Apostles under Rabbi Gamaliel. Mm-hmm. Um, the head of the Sanhedrin. Right. And was uh, a persecutor of the early Christian movement until he had this change of heart experience and then he became... On the road to Damascus? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, in his account, he had this experience that then sent him out to the desert. He was in the desert, I want to say, two or three years on his own, figuring this out. And then he went back to Jerusalem and met with the early disciples. And then he went out on his own preaching mission um, and, and took the name Paul to reflect that he had been transformed. Instead of Saul. Instead of Saul, yeah. There's also, you could just maybe a couple sentences say about how there are different Christianities. In fact, a lot of the books didn't even get into the New Testament because there are right. so many different Christian paths. Yeah, it's, it's, a whole nother, it's a whole nother conversation, but early Christianity... Yeah. Let me say something about that. We are retrojecting from our perspective where there's something called Christianity and there's something called Judaism. Right? But we know from historical records that both among the early Christians, the early followers of Jesus, there were many, many different flavors of that. Of Judaism and Christianity. And, uh, no, the and there were also different, many different Jewish sects at the time. What we practice today, we are the inheritors of what gets known as rabbinic Judaism. There were other kinds of Jews, including Jewish Christians, in the first century who didn't um, accept the authority of the rabbinic interpretation of Judaism. That was, I wouldn't call it a battle, let's just call it a, a life going on for centuries. You could say that, the, that rabbinic Judaism didn't become normative Judaism until the 8th or 9th century. In other words, we're talking about hundreds of years where different versions, interpretations, the same is true, not in the same time span, of Christianity. Uh, there were many different interpretations by the followers of Jesus in the first century of what it meant to be mm-hmm. a Christian. Um, and what we're, what one, and it's important to know that. This isn't a course in first century sects. We'll allude to them. So, but it's, is that re- addressing what you're saying? Do you want to add to that? Well, and that's, it's important to recognize that because that's what the Bible, and particularly the Christian Bible, grows out of. Um, the, the Hebrew canon was fairly kind of cemented by this time. Not it, it, I can talk about that. Um, That's why I was reading this cool book. But in the early centuries of Christianity, what would become Orthodox Christianity didn't exist yet. And you did have different strands of Jesus' tradition that were developing. Um, some early Christians adhered fully to, uh, to Jewish law, um, to dietary restrictions, all of those kinds of practices. There was a shift towards opening Christianity as a path that would also include Gentiles without having them convert ritually to Judaism in the process. And that's where Christianity and Judaism really started kind of, um, you know, diverging. diverging. Um, Did that have to do with circumcision? That's definitely a piece of it, right? Yeah. Circumcision, well, diet, understand. all of that, right. And you want to get people to convert, you want them, you know, get some numbers in, right? So <laughs> that, that fell by the wayside. Um, and, and what replaced circumcision was the rite of baptism. That was the ritual marker of entrance. And was that taken from mikvah? Yes, we'll talk about it. Susan, I want to recognize some other people okay, who had their hands up. Um, so let me just wrap that up really quickly. Um, 
you see in the four Gospels, for example, the four stories of Jesus in the New Testament, different strands of early Christianity that were not identical. What you get in the Gospel of John is a very different flavor of early Christianity than what you get in the Gospel of Mark. Orthodoxy is what developed when these different strands of Christianity were pulled together and harmonized as a single tradition. Um, so it, it emerges out of different strands being combined. And it's a process of several hundred years. Right. Jesse? Something you said earlier inspired a certain fantasy, which I'd like to project. Uh, imagine you're, you're the apostles and you're going out and preaching, and people are saying, Look, you're going, we have a perfect religion, you're going to get And you, you answer, No, 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 we're just fulfilling the prophecy. Mm -hmm. We're not, this isn't really anything new. It's kind of a nice sales tool, but I, I mean, I'd like your comment on that idea. Uh, Judaism and Christianity, both. So let's get a picture, and I'm not a, an expert in, in Greek civilization, so I'm very much an amateur. But in Hellenistic civilization, around the Mediterranean, um, Greek thought and Greek language are ascendant, right? And then that is superseded by the Roman Empire, which uh, is a continuation of that, one could say, I think, in many ways. Mm -hmm. And it's a giant cosmopolitan uh, period in the whole Mediterranean basin. Um, this begins around with Alexander the Great in the uh, uh, fourth century BCE. And, the t and um, so the Jewish people are this little province in Judea. They're a small group. They've survived one exile to Babylonia. They left some of their kin in Babylonia who remain to this day. And not only are Jews a minority, monotheism is a minority. Most people well, are I'm even pri I'm, I'm before, I'm just saying Judaism is the only, I'm talking about like 200, 300 BCE. Yeah. Okay. So monotheism. Did you say we were living Jews? In, in Judea, right? Around Jerusalem. Um, and, you know, thereabouts. You know, but, but we're really a, a tiny group. Um, Jewish communities in the cosmopolitan Hellenistic empires spread. And they established themselves in cities all around the Mediterranean, in Alexandria, and in Carthage, and in Turkey, and Anatolia, and, and you know, in Antioch, in, uh, in Rome. And, and Ju the Jews are living all around the Mediterranean ba Basin. Two things about that. One is that the Jews are already considered an ancient people by this time. And many people are interested in this strange uh, uh, group that doesn't bow down, is not polytheistic. Jews are beginning to proselytize, right? To bring people in. And you have a whole class of people who are sympathetic to Judaism, but they've not become Jews that, that were called God-fearers. And they would be associated with local synagogues. They might support synagogues financially without having made the final step of conversion. Right, right. So it's still, it's not quite the same, yet Ju Judaism is in the process over several centuries of transforming from a tribal, very specific location-based group into this new phenomenon of a kind of a covenantal 
faith that you can enter into. Right? Until then, it was only if you were born into Judaism. This is a transformation happening in the Hellenistic period. Jews who are living around the Mediterranean basin and don't live necessarily close to the source become Greek speakers. They don't necessarily even know Hebrew. They send donations to the temple in Jerusalem. If they're lucky, they make pilgrimages there. But there are giant Greek-speaking communities, Jewish communities around the Mediterranean. So in the 3rd century BCE, uh, there it, the, the scriptures begin being translated into Greek. This, this is called the Septuagint because 70 scholars, according to tradition, all sat down in different rooms to translate, and all their translations came out exactly the same, <laughs> which proved that this translation was truly the word of God, right? That's the legend about the Septuagint. So, it's a fluid tradition, and there are Greek-speaking people who are now able to access the Bible. Um, the Torah. The, there is no New Testament. Okay. The, yes, the, ton, the Hebrew scriptures. Okay. Right? I'm still, we're still well before the time of Jesus. Okay. Meanwhile, as this tradition of having a literary canon gets more and more established, it appears that by, to make it very, very sort of broad strokes, it appears that by the middle of the second century BCE, say 150 BCE, the books of the Hebrew Bible have essentially been selected. The criteria for selection seems to be their antiquity or their presumed antiquity. So you will have many books that we can date scholar, in terms of scholarship to, uh, say, the second century BCE, but are written in the voice of Daniel, who is in the Book Netzer's court 400 years earlier, and so by retrojecting into antiquity the authorship of the book, it gets accepted as venerable. Because there seems to be an understanding in ancient, among, the, among the scribes of Israel that prophecy has come to an end, and we are now in a new era when the God, can, God can be accessed through the study of the ancient word. And you see that reflected in the structure of the Hebrew canon, that the prophets aren't at the end, the writings are. There's a sort of sense that, again, era of prophecies ended, and now era of writings, uh, it's... Well, not exactly. Uh, according to uh, Vanderturn, uh, the, even in Josephus, in the first century, and in some Christian sources, the Hebrew Bible is referred to mostly as the Torah and the prophets. The, so, so it seems like the writings weren't necessarily a separate section, but that Psalms and Proverbs, it was fluid. It was still fluid. Mm -hmm. It gets fixed over time, but the, he, he debunks that particular theory that the writings came last. Okay. He thinks that, that what happened was, at some point in the second century BCE, it's pretty much understood that books that have, that have ancient um, authorship have made it in, and then anything that follows that doesn't is not part of the national <coughs> sacred heritage literature of the Jewish people. Um, he makes a point that 
At the same time, other cultures, Egypt and other cultures, were also writing their sort of national histories, uh, as it were, but not in a secular sense, in a, uh, that there was some kind of movement to do that. So be that as it may, this book is fascinating. What I wanted to point out is that the Hebrew Bible as we know it here, by the time of Jesus, is, an is essentially an established set of scrolls that are understood to be sacred. Um, and uh, so Jews in the first century are looking at their entire life experience through their relationship to these sacred scrolls. Um, Pharisees is a very important word to unpack here. So what, when, when the New Testament speaks about the Pharisees, what's your understanding of what's going on there? So, so the New Testament refers to a couple different Jewish groups, mo primarily Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, Essenes aren't touched on. There's this, an assumption that maybe John the Baptist was connected to the Essene movement. Um, the Pharisees were, in some ways, the more progressive school of thought. Sadducees more conservative, is my understanding of this. Um, Pharisees believed in uh, a general resurrection of the dead, uh, afterlife. Sadducees did not. Uh, it was more the sort of old concept of Sheol, that you went down to the grave and that was it. Um, and you jump in and... Uh, okay. That, that's my basic sense. Pharisees were a more progressive school of thought. Sadducees a more conservative uh, school of interpretation. Pharisees, which becomes an epithet in uh, the New Testament. Right. Jesus wow. often sort of speaks negatively of Pharisees, calling them hypocrites. Um, right. And there's some thought that he may have even had some of his early formation within that school. He may have been a Pharisee. Okay, so who, who are the Pharisees? Pharisees comes from the Hebrew word parshanim. Sadducees comes from the tzadok. Sadok was a priestly family. The Sadducees is the Greek version of the house of Tzadok. Parshanim are those who do, who separate themselves and hold themselves to a higher standard of observance. The, the Pharisees are, uh, in, are um, another term for the rabbis. The rabbis are another term for the scribes. Remember, a scribe wasn't just someone that you went and paid some money to to write a letter to your mother far away because you didn't know how to write. The scribes in a, in, in a society, an ancient society where most people were not literate, were the keepers of the sacred knowledge of the culture and the community. And right. the New Testament often will lump it together. It will re reference scribes and Pharisees as sort of a single unit, the scribes and Pharisees. They were the, they were the, the literate and learned sect of Jews who were the scribal class. That meant they were responsible for the upkeep, copying, and interpretation of the sacred literature. You couldn't go to the store and get a Bible, right? These were committed to memory. They knew them by heart. Jews today continue in very orthodox settings to know these texts by heart. They knew them by heart, and they knew the inherited interpretations by heart. The Torah was known as the written Torah, and the inherited interpretations were known as the oral Torah. And the scribes were the rabbis. They were the keepers of the knowledge, both the written knowledge and its interpretation. And, and Jesus critiques them for sort of 
safeguarding the knowledge. He says things like, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hold the keys to the kingdom of God, and you neither enter nor let others enter. So there's a sense that they're kind of, you know, hoarding the knowledge. They were, that's right. So if knowledge is esoteric, if it's knowledge that's only for the initiated few, um, uh, then it, it, that's something to be challenged, right? Why isn't, you know, when, when, when uh, uh, um, Joshua says to Moses, there are people prophesying in the camp, and Moses says in the book of Numbers, would that all my people were prophets, right? So uh, the scribes can be looked, the, the, the rabbis, also the Pharisees, also the scribes, it all means the same thing, the keepers of the sacred text and its interpretation. Um, the Sadducees, for example, rejected the rabbi's claim to authority over interpretation. Once you have a sacred text, series of texts, then interpretations become how the word of God, how we're supposed to behave, becomes revealed to us. So whoever's interpretation is considered authoritative becomes the mediator for how we're supposed to practice. Does that make sense, everybody? It's a little like the Karaites who took only... The Karaites who come later... Literalists. They're not literalists. The Karaites who come later... Now, move, jump ahead seven centuries, okay? Are another group that challenged the authoritative interpreting uh, ability of the rabbinic school. They were called Karaites because if you look at the word mikra, that's another word for scripture, they considered themselves scripturalists. They rejected the rabbinic interpretation. So they weren't exactly literalists because they had their own interpretations because let's face it, as soon as you read a text and put it into practice, you have interpreted it, right? A, a word on a page put into action is an interpretation. It always is. So... Uh, but that's a whole other conversation. But Stu is alluding to another group later in late antiquity and early Middle Ages who also challenged rabbinic, I guess the word would be hegemony. Um, Bob, what would you like to say? So I'm back with Isaiah. <laughs> Let's go back. Yeah, please. In the translation of the suffering servant, yes. you read us, and it's clear in the translation, it's a singular noun. Yes. yes. Is it that way in Hebrew? Yes. And has there been rabbinical commentary on the poetry then of that referring to the people, not foretelling uh, uh, Jesus? Yes. Uh, he is a singular. Right. Right. In the, the sense that Israel is singular. So Israel. Has been discussed rabbinically. Absolutely. Yes. Israel is often referred to in the singular, both as masculine and as feminine, by the prophets. She, he. So it would be consistent with the language of Isaiah that it would be referring to the corporate people of Israel. Okay. Sorry to... So, so I'll get back to my point in a second, but Jay, and then I'll come back over here. Just a quick follow-up what Bob said, and, and, and for clarity in my own mind. Uh, this Isaiah you read, um, uh, is it, it... Isaiah cuts across all... All four. Are they all identical, or do they each put their little spin on it? Great question. So, if the book of Isaiah appears in all four versions of the Bible that are listed in this chart, is it the same Isaiah? Uh, Isaiah is being interpreted, is being translated from the same 
Hebrew text. Um, early on, Christians would have actually been working off the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Contemporary translations almost unanimously <coughs> go back to the Hebrew uh, source text. So yes, it's the same version. Now, you'll see little different tweaks in translation that, that you know, are playing out different positions that validate but, your point of view right, about what it should mean but everyone's working off the same text so the answer is yes it is and, and let's go back this way because there were some hands here yes please um, I have two questions the first one is if the Pharisees were the progressive sort of Way. Maybe. Maybe that's not the best way to say it. Uh, yeah. uh, not necessarily. Okay, it doesn't sound like they were very progressive. Right. Well, uh, progressive, again, we say progressive in the land of the free and the home of the brave, where there's an idea that every person has equal rights. These ideas didn't exist at the time. So we have to be very careful what we call progressive when we're talking about a period of time that we know little about. What was progressive about the Pharisees, was that they were willing to do, make audacious... They had in, newfangled interpretations. Audacious interpretations that would serve the contemporary reality that they, that they were in. Um, and uh, they seemed to have a sense of irony when they would make a particularly audacious and, and, and to the plain eye ridiculous interpretation of a biblical verse based on its plain meaning. Uh, they, they, they had stories they would tell. Many of you have heard me tell this famous story of them challenging God with an interpretation. Oh. And uh, finally, uh, God says, essentially, have it your way. <laughs> and, and, and so what I'm saying is that I think it's fair to say that they were progressive in the sense that they were not wedded to uh, a rigid treatment of the scripture. And they were using it whether unselfconsciously or self-consciously, and I have a feeling it was self-consciously, to shape a Judaism that would fit into the Hellenistic world. Is that responding to your question? Yes, and when you say they were the keepers of the text, mm -hmm. I mean, the keepers of it also could mean that they were keeping it away from everybody else. So... Allowed them to amass a lot of power, I would... There think. is a... They want... Yes, yes, they want... They were the... They... they yes... Um, so, but the way to describe that is that there's a scholarly debate about, now when you read what the critique of the Pharisees, you hold, how did you say that they're holding the keys? Oh, Jesus says, you hold the keys to knowledge, the keys to the kingdom of God, and, and neither do you enter in, nor, nor do you allow others to enter in. That they're sort of He's really dissing them. Yeah. He's saying, yeah, you're holding it, and, you're, and, and not, you don't even get it. Not only are you not sharing with other people, that was probably a legitimate critique because there are enough places where the rabbis talk about what are called Am Haaretz, which literally means the people of the land, or you would say illiterate peasants. Most of the population was illiterate. The rabbis would set up their Torah scrolls in the town square on market days so that they could so people could hear the Torah, and they'd have someone from the rabbinic school who would be translating and interpreting it into either Aramaic or Greek so that people could understand the Torah. They didn't even speak or read Hebrew. Right? So they really were the keepers of the sacred knowledge. Uh, and they, had a, they tend to have a very pejorative view of the unlettered. And they tend to hold themselves to a higher standard. On the other hand, there seems to be a clear 
trend among rabbinic Jews to spread the word. And more and more, and so if a sacred book is your connection to God, then it becomes a cultural sort of priority to become literate. So nothing is static here. Uh, the Pharisees are not necessarily the critique that the New Testament gives them. In fact, when you study this, the, the famous teachings of the Pharisees, of the rabbis, they, of, from the time of Jesus, they parallel Jesus' teachings to an incredible degree, which would be more to say that Jesus was likely to be someone learned in the rabbinic interpretation of the Torah, who was having disputations just like everyone else was, and that his critique is something that Jews could embrace as Rabbi Jesus, mm-hmm. we could, one, I'd say once we get through this round, maybe we're going to want to sit down with a more, a more you know, a really mm-hmm. close focus. Look at some of the teachings themselves. And Look at the teachings themselves in comparison with uh, some of the rabbinic teaching. Uh, Gail. Yes. And it's the first time I've really gotten it that it wasn't just that there were some Pharisees or people interpreting bits of text, but that there was a huge ongoing literature of interpretation and commentary that had been going on at least since the beginning of the since the third century. Right. Anyway, with of which we have in recent years particularly, but we have uncovered a lot of them. Some of them have been known forever, like Jubilees. Mm-hmm. Um, but books that never became part of the canon, either canon, Jewish or Christian, but that were interpretation again and again and again, probably by different people. Um, and so I'm trying to say just there was a culture of which the early Christians were a part, as were the Jews out of which rabbinic Judaism came, in which interpreting the Bible, they were not fundamentalists at all. Oh, no. And interpreting the Bible was something they did, looking word by word at the Hebrew Bible. And every time there was any kind of little question in there, you know, um, there's a whole interpretation around it, much of which ended up in depending on who you're talking about, either in the Christian understanding of Hebrew scripture, looking at, or in the Jewish understanding of Hebrew scripture. But most of us don't know anything about it. But that's all I want to say. So mm-hmm. really the book is called The Bible as It Was by James Kugel, K-U-G-E-L. So here we now have a culture and a developing that venerates sacred literature and the, the word, not necessarily in a rigid way, but as the, as, the, as, the, um, as the container of the divine, uh, di- of, of the divine, yes? He says that, he starts by saying that they all had four assumptions, mm. of which the first is that the Bible is cryptic. <laughs> right. They already thought of the Bible as cryptic. It's not obvious. Good Don't assume them. it means what it seems to say. It's not, you don't read it just like that. It might say that, but also. The second was, I think, um, it was relevant to our daily lives. So we should read it as teaching and instruction about our daily lives. And the third was, I'm losing it, um, it was the word of God, definitely. 
coming through. And the fourth was that it was meant to be read as a single piece of work, which was perfect. Mm -hmm. And so everything in it, it might look like it didn't make sense, it was our job to figure it out, which is so much what has come to be our Torah study, but it was that was the understanding way back. We're talking, you know, more than two thousand years. So, so Gail, that that takes us in a direction that I would like to sort of run down. Now we've been looking at what what is the Bible literally? It's literally a collection of books that you know historically came about in this way. But what is the Bible for our traditions? How do we use the Bible? What does it mean for us spiritually? What place does it hold within the context of, of each tradition? And how does that place differ? Um, and to jump back to what you're saying about the way they interpreted scripture and that they said, well, it's, it's cryptic and we've got to kind of crack it open. When you look at the way early Christians interpreted scripture, they, they were very far from being literalists. You know, the whole sort of modern literalist approach within Christianity to scripture is, is a modern invention. Um, when you go back to the early fathers of the church, Jonathan and I chatted about this a, a while back, they actually looked at scripture as having layers of meaning. And this may have been inherited from Judaism. Um, Origen, one of the early fathers in the second, third I, I century. I think it actually emerges from uh, Greek culture and is picked up by, by, by the right. interpreters of the Bible. That actually makes yeah, a lot of sense because they're trying to now reinterpret these traditions within a, a Greek context. Uh, Origen, he said that Christian interpretation of scripture should be based on a, at least three levels. And so he said scripture, all scripture had body, soul, and spirit. Just like the human being is composed of in, in the early Christian scheme, body, soul, and spirit. Um, the body, the soma in Greek, was the literal historical level. Um, the soul was the sort of moral ethical interpretation, and then the psyche, soul, and then pneuma, or spirit, was the mystical, more metaphorical interpretation. So if you took a passage like the story of the Exodus, the body is the literal historical Exodus from Egypt. The ethical or moral is God is on the side of the oppressed and you know wants to pull the oppressed out of that situation so we should take our stand against uh, oppression. Then the mystical read would be this is a story of the soul's journey. Um, you know, exodus and return from God and return to God. Um, and so that's how they were reading scripture. They were reading it at all of those levels. What and year was Origen, roughly? Origen was, I want to say, 3rd century, but maybe even 2nd century. Do you remember the date, Suzanne? Maybe, I want to say like, I don't know, 180 or something. Like maybe late 2nd. But I'll look it up and come back with it next week. Um, but how scripture is held in each tradition, I think is, is pretty different. And you see this the way we approach it ritually in our worship spaces. So what's behind the doors uh, in, the, yes. in, in the worship space? So what is the space that has doors called? The ark. The ark. And what's in there? The Torah scroll. The Torah scroll. The five books of Moses. So Christians also have this space in their worship space that's a closed box, and we call it the tabernacle. When you open it, it's not the text, it's consecrated bread and wine. So the idea is that it's Jesus, um, Jesus in the form of bread and wine. Um, 
Christians tend to say that they are the religion of a person, not the religion of a book. So the book is given secondary status to the person. Uh, Jesus is seen as the Word of God in an embodied sense. He embodies the Word of God in human form. What is the will and Word of God played out in human life? You look at this person. Um, the scriptures are the Word of God in a relative or secondary sense in that how do we know about Jesus through the scriptures? So Christians sort of interpreted the whole thing as pointing towards this human person who embodied the will and word of God. Um, and so the understanding then is that, for example, if Jesus disagrees with scripture, Jesus trumps the scripture. And, and you see Jesus in the Gospels working in this way. He will quote Torah, and he'll say, you have been told... But I tell you. Um, you Give us an example of that. that yeah, pops it, mind. He'll say, you have been told, uh, hate your enemy and love your neighbor. But I tell you, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You have been told, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, resist not one who is evil. And someone who slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other. So he takes old injunctions or commandments and then flips them over, and he says that his interpretation has more authority than the text. Um, so that sort of plays out in the way Christians hold the Bible, um, that Jesus' word embodied, and the text points to that, um, and it plays out in, in our worship context. We sit for the reading of um, letters, epistles from the New Testament, we sit for the reading of um, Hebrew scripture, we sit for the chanting of the Psalms, but we stand when the gospel portion is read, um, because you're sort of encountering the person of Jesus. So I wonder, there's, there's something very different about the way the two traditions hold. Wow. A person embodying versus... A text embodying. A text telling about it. By the way, origin, according to Rabbi Google, was second century. Second century, okay. Good. But, but, but if, if I just may, if uh, something logically doesn't click in my head, if in fact the Torah is the word of God, mm -hmm. and Jesus is an is a, is a embodiment of God, mm -hmm. and Jesus, so Jesus, uh, you know, Jesus is really contradicting Torah, right. so, so God is contradicting. It's, it's one of those tricky things that Christians were always trying to, you know, scrounging to sort of figure out. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, which is uh, really rooted in trying to tell Jesus within the context of Judaism. He, it sort of paints Jesus as a new Moses. And yeah, We're going to need to talk about the four Gospels today. Right. So, yeah, well, because yeah. that'll, that'll so, be illuminating. So but this is, just, we'll, that, well, uh, let's just... Back, back up to that. So, but so Rob had something to ask too. So, okay. So, so let me do a little four gospel thing, and then we'll jump back and forth. Uh, they can look what they have here. Yeah. If you look at your list, you'll see the New Testament canon begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So these are the four gospels. Gospel. Okay. So now, now you're on this white page. This eight and a half by eleven page. I mean. Gotcha. Right. So the comparative chart you have is only looking at our two, two approaches to Hebrew scripture. So New Testament opens with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called Gospels. So the Gospel is the Greek word for good news. Uh, so these were telling the good news of Jesus. They're not exactly biographies in the way we would understand biography today. They were used liturgically, and they 
we're interpreting the story of Jesus for different groups of people in different circumstances and different times. So they weren't all written uh, at the same time. Mark, scholars think, is probably the earliest gospel account written sometime shortly after the destruction of the second temple. So around the year 70. So if Jesus died in about 30, the first account uh, is around the year, sometime around the year 70. Perhaps. So in the early church, uh, the sayings of Jesus were collected. Uh, it's theorized that there were early sayings gospels that just you know, collected teachings of Jesus, uh, and the story was passed on person to person. As early Christians began moving further away from the events of the life of Jesus, they said, okay, it's, we're going to actually need to take the story down. And then around 70, you start getting narrative expressions of the gospel, with Mark probably being the earliest, um, writing down the story, and really interpreting Jesus in light of those suffering servant passages in many ways. Um, Moving forward to, and this is all disputed, this is scholarly conjecture, but maybe roughly around 80 or 90, Luke and Matthew's Gospels emerge. Luke's Gospel is actually directed more towards uh, the Gentile Jesus movement. It's uh, worded in ways that would be more accessible to Gentile Christians. Um, Matthew's Gospel is rooted much more in Jewish language and actually uh, plays the game of interpreting the prophets in light of Jesus a lot. Matthew will say, and this happened to fulfill the words of the prophet Hosea, and this happened to fulfill the words of the prophet Micah. Um, so that's woven all throughout, not so in Luke. Um, John's gospel probably is written latest, maybe around 90 or 100, and this is when Christians and Jews have much more formally parted ways. And this is where you start seeing uh, a bit heavier anti-Semitic language. The term Jews is used with a bit of vitriol. Um, Jesus will say, the Jews, which is not, nothing he would say in the earlier Gospels, because obviously he was a Jew. Um, so at this point, that division is happening. Um, the interesting thing there is that as you start to see those early hints of anti-Semitism, of course at this point, it's the minority. The Christians are the small minority. And so when you have... Well, if, if you imagine you have a, an older sibling and a younger sibling, for the, the small sibling to say to the older sibling, I hate you, I want to kill you. Well, it doesn't mean a lot. For the older sibling to say it to the younger sibling who has more power, you know, then, so that flip happened. Initially, you've got this sort of small little persecuted group who's saying, ah, and then suddenly now they're the larger power, and suddenly those texts take on a totally different quality. Um, but the, so that's the four Gospels. Now, how, how different are the Gospels from each other? Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are in many ways remarkably similar, and because of that, they're called the synoptic Gospels, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C. So syn means with or together, optic means seeing, uh, so it means they're the Gospels that see together. They present a very similar picture. Um, Jesus teaches in those Gospels in parables and aphorisms, um, Proverbs, John's Gospel, Jesus suddenly is talking in these very lofty I am statements. He says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread come down from heaven. I am the true vine. Um, these aren't things that Jesus says at all in those earlier Gospels. And what most scholars would say is that uh, this isn't the language the, the historical Jesus used. 
Rabbi Jesus wouldn't have gone around saying, I am blah, blah, blah. Uh, instead, the early Christian community, uh, at writing at this later time, they looked back and said, for us, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. For us, Jesus is bread come down from heaven. And so then he sort of inherits those statements, but he wouldn't have spoken that way. He also changes the date of the Last Supper. That's right, right. The Last Supper actually shifts over by a... a, a, a earlier, one day earlier. One day earlier. Because so, that's when the Paschal Lamb was sacrificed. So I, I, I would say that as someone unlearned in the Gospels, I have a picture of the story of Jesus' life that I picked up. Mm -hmm. And when you read each of the Gospels, they tell the story very differently. Mm -hmm. There are events in one Gospel that aren't, don't even come up in another Gospel. There, So um, it's, um, it's fascinating that way, that there isn't a unified story of the life of Jesus. There are these four Gospels that get Which, woven together. Is that fair to say? Yeah, they paint very similar stories and timelines, but if you imagine the stories of Jesus were floating around in oral tradition, and uh, they're like ornaments that you hang on a Christmas tree, you're going to hang them in different places or something, so, so Matthew took stories and hung them here, here, and here, and John took them and hung them you know, there, there, and there, so it doesn't play out in the exact same chronology in each gospel. Um, Matthew and Luke actually incorporated Mark into their Gospels. So uh -huh. the idea is that each of those Gospel compilers, they had a copy of Matt Mark <coughs> in front of them, this shorter, earlier Gospel. Mm. Then they had some of their own material that had emerged in their communities, and they wove them together. So you can actually take Matthew and Luke and pull out all of Mark from Matthew and Luke, and then you can see what's left that is unique to each of those communities. Mm. Um, Nathan, yeah. Nathan, uh, and then Pauline. Before that, Mark was around 70 AD. Isn't that the same time as the destruction of the temple? Yes, right. yes. Is there any relationship between those two? There absolutely is. Yeah, there, what, what would you like to say about that? I want to hear what you have to. What starts happening? Oh, well, let, me, let me just share this first. For those who don't know, in the year 70 was the conclusion, was, there was a four year revolution by the Jews against rebellion against Rome. It ended in catastrophe. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Uh, Masada, the story of Masada, was the last holdout in the rebellion against Rome. It was the end of Judaism as being centered around a temple in Jerusalem and left a giant vacuum in Jewish life. It was a calamity, that's, that, a catastrophe. So the fact that Gospels are being compiled at about this time has to be taken in context also. Christianity and Judaism are both responses to the destruction of the temple. How does, you know, they were two streams that were, at this, by the time the temple was destroyed, Christians were already separating out as, as a, another stream, but then the temple's destroyed, and both groups start trying to make sense of their, their spiritual trajectories in light of that. Uh, so Jesus then is interpreted. So what the early Christians do is actually sort of subversive in a way. If you understand that you need the sacrificial system of the temple as a, a mediator between you and God, well now the temple's gone. So early Christians then interpreted the death of Jesus 
Well, Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that takes care of our sins, so we don't need the temple system anymore. So it gives you a way of operating now that the temple is no longer there. Doesn't that make a ton of sense? Um, you, we, oh, uh, Pauline, can you wait with yours? Sure. Okay, because I love the way you're saying it. So let's ask a meta question. The temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. The priestly caste, who were the Sadducees by and large, lose their power base and their function. But more than that, this was where, let us, Psalm 122, let us uh, go up to Jerusalem where all paths converge and be in the house of God. People were sending their shekels and they're making pilgrimages and Herod had built a temple complex that could take in two million pilgrims a year like the Hajj in Mecca. I mean, it was, a, it was gigantic. That's the scene where Jesus is overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple courtyard when people are trying to buy sacrifices, sacrificial animals so they can, it's like, what a scene. That's the historical scene. And then it's all destroyed. And it's destroyed in a fever of um, expectation that the end is near, mm -hmm. that we're going to be restored. We're going to throw off Ro the yoke of Rome and be restored to sovereignty finally from this humiliating position we've been in. And there's a lot of what's called, you know, prediction of the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord that's going to make it all, right? All of that stuff is happening in the first century, big time. So, so this sort of apocalyptic fervor then starts coloring uh, early Christian accounts of Jesus. You know, suddenly the temple's destroyed, the end of the world's coming, and uh, Christians latched onto the image from the book of Daniel where he sees one like a son of man descending um, as this apocalyptic figure who sort of comes to kind of close down history and start the reign of God. And Jesus is interpreted in light of that image, in light, because everything's apocalyptic at this time. Uh, so you have this whole, uh, yes, Suzanne? Just also in the Gospel of Mark, um, one of the things that's happening that directly relates to what you guys are saying is that um, about 40 times in that short, short Gospel, bang, 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 is Jesus is misunderstood, misunderstanding, misunderstanding, misunderstanding. Oh, so in the Gospel yeah. of Mark, yeah. he says something, and yeah. people misunderstand. Then how does Jesus react to that? Does he say, you don't understand? It, it, well, I'm just curious. It's not direct. It's more subtle and poetic, and it builds and builds and builds and builds. Oh. And then it builds all the way to the crucifixion. And nobody understands yeah. what's going nobody on here. It, right? yeah. Nobody gets it. And remember your question, because I want to expand on, on where my brain is going for a minute. Um, so there's the question. Your way, of, your way of connecting with God has been destroyed. The Jewish people. The early Christians in the year 70 are still part of the Jewish body, right? They're a, they're a separate stream, but they're, you know, they argue in the same synagogues. They have their own, you know, like, um, and it's destroyed. So how do you respond? You could say that rabbinic Judaism is one response to having the, the centerpiece of your spiritual and national life demolished, and that Christianity is another response. So I'd really love to explore that as a way of thinking about shared origins and differing paths. I think it's, I think it's you know, I think it's a legitimate way of exploring it, even though we're talking in broad strokes and to a large degree don't know what we're talking about because we weren't there. But I think it's valid. So 
Uh, that's where I want to spend some time. But now there were some other hands. Uh, Pauline and then Anne. I have some questions about the four Gospels. Two questions, basically. Do all the um, denominations of Christianity see these Gospels in the same light? Or are there different feelings of how they're read or how they're seen or one, where one takes? And the second question has to do in relation to compare to how we see Torah is, <coughs> are these words, and they're not in agreement, the words of God, mm -hmm. or only the actions of Jesus, that is, the words of God. In other words, is any of the denominations or throughout time were these different <coughs> gospels seen as some interpretation of the word of God, or merely how did Jesus behave, and that was how they're so modernity and post-modernity radically changes the picture. Today, most Christians in mainline denominations are open to and welcoming of higher biblical criticism, where we say, let's get behind the text, let's see where it came from, let's see how it was formulated, and that, that it's okay to do that. Um, you know, before that, I think that pretty much everyone did see them as fairly divinely inspired, and... <clears throat> there was a, an attempt to harmonize those four Gospels, uh, to see them, you know, each of them as somehow, if there are differences, we can kind of blur the lines and fudge the differences and they give us a coherent picture. Uh, but you even see early fathers of the church uh, wrestling with that. And so some of them, like Origen, he actually he recognized John was a totally different thing altogether. So he referred to John as the spiritual Gospel because he realized it was working at that more mystical level of interpretation. Um, all major Christian denominations accept those four texts as the four primary Gospels. Uh, so that's not very disputed uh, among any recognized denomination. I, I don't know that I'm answering you, Pauline. We'll get there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Anne had a question or a comment. Uh, I need some historical clarification. You said, I think, that the temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year 40. 70. 70? 70 of the first century. 30. Okay, so this is Rome's um, uh, taking over the world, the known world. They're just it's the height of the Roman Empire. Thank you. Um, what religion are the Romans? <laughs> Who can answer that question? Many. What religion are the Romans? There's, there's not a religion. There's not that is a Roman religion. religion. There are many gods, many streams of religious practice, and as long as everyone pays tribute to That's right. Caesar, to the emperor, um, then you don't mess with it too much. Part of the problem was Jews and Christians didn't like to recognize the legitimacy of, of the emperor. And didn't want to as well, God. God. I'm talking about Zeus and uh, all you, the all of the them. Yeah. But but there wasn't a unified polytheistic religion that everyone held the same the same framework or even homage the same deities. There was a lot of flexibility. Okay. A, a lot of flexibility so because to keep the Pax Romana, to keep for the Roman Empire to keep its massive empire together, they were happy 
to have each peoples they conquered continue right. to worship their own gods as long as they included the emperor right. in their pantheon. Okay, so if the temple was destroyed in 70... Yes. That's 70 years after Jesus... 40 years. 40 after, years. He would have died around 30. Thank you. He would have died. Okay, so <coughs> they were killing a person who was still known as... Wait, who's Roman. they? Who, who, who was killing who? The Romans right. were killing a man, Jesus, who, as far as they're concerned... Was a Jew. Was a Jew. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Yes. They were killing many Jews. Yes. Well, yes, yes. Uh, our topic next week is the historical Jesus. What can we know? So we're going to talk about that a lot next time. Yes. Okay, so I think there was another dangle to my question, but I... So yes, they were killing a Jew who they thought was a troublemaker of some kind. Yes. That's right. That's right. Uh, yes. Was, just correct my understanding. At, before the destruction of the temple, weren't the Jews allowed or given a special status by Rome? And what happened? What happened? So, the, again, speaking as a, a truly amateur historian, the, um, the, Jews were, the Jews lived all over the Roman Empire, not just in Judea, and they uh, did not want to have a statue of the emperor in their sanctuary because it was idolatry and because the Jews, unlike other peoples of that era, worshipped one unseen God. And so this was a real problem. So yes, the Roman Empire, in attempting to maintain the Pax Romana, gave special dispensation to Jews, as long as they paid their taxes, right? Um, uh, what happened was, it's hard to say what happened. Um, uh, who knows whether it was the daily humiliations of being under Roman rule that raised up a rebellion. Perhaps it was a, a moment of, of fervor, a time of fervor for throwing off the yoke of Rome and restoring the splendor of the kingdom of David. Um, we know from contemporaneous Jewish accounts that the Jews were deeply divided and were involved in a civil war at the time in terms of how to respond to Roman rule, right? So there wasn't the Jews. There was like, the, it was an incredible time of incredible ferment and uh, disruption. Uh, and it would appear from the rabbinic literature that the zealots, as they were known, refused to negotiate. And that in an account that comes sometime later, a rabbi named Yochanan ben Zakkai, Jerusalem was under siege, everyone was starving, the zealots were in control of Jerusalem, and they refused to negotiate with Rome. And in the story, uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai has himself uh, smuggled out of the city in a coffin. He emerges from there and goes to the general and says, look, we'll give you Jerusalem. Let us continue to practice our religion. Right? Uh, but to do that, just to get out of the city, he had to fake death because of the zealots who were in charge of the city. So I think, it's, so I think we can get enough of a picture, knowing what we know about human affairs, that you had a deeply divided Jewish people 
with, with staunch militants and those who wanted to make compromises and it, what it amounted to finally was, um, was, the, was mass destruction. Uh, Lori? And then Lori first, your hand was up, and then I'm all yours. Laura, Lori, go ahead. Okay, one question at a time. Say the first question again. First question. Um, when the Romans were in charge, did some of what they believed make it into the Old Testament? And then oh, okay. Okay, hold on. Save the next question. And I wanted to hear what Laura had to say. Um, which was more what you were talking about. <clears throat> I think from my historical readings around this time and the uprising, there was also this messianic fervor fervor within the groups that were uprising. It wasn't just strictly a political uprising. There was this other right. piece of there it was, which then right. There's no such thing. Um, mirrors the developing Christian movement. Right, and that's, that's a question to look at maybe next week when we look at the historical Jesus, but the relationship of Jesus and the early Jesus movement to messianic language and that messianic fervor. And did Jesus himself identify himself as the Messiah? Did the later tradition project that back onto him? Um, and let's, let's look at that next week because that messianic fervor that's in the first century kind of apocalyptic milieu definitely informs Christianity and, and the direction it develops in. Let's also keep in mind that uh, we can't retroject the idea of a strictly political rebellion to a time when... when right. When, when religious fervor, or we could say any political rebellion in the 19th or 20th century had as much religious fervor as anyone back then. So it's like, it, we've got to be careful about that distinction. Um, now, Laurie's question. By the time of the Romans, the Jews have been around a long time. And by the time of the Roman rule, Judaism had pretty much expunged all other gods from uh, Jewish practice. Whereas when you read in earlier biblical books that Jeremiah goes outside the city and there are people baking cakes for the Queen of Heaven right outside the walls of Jerusalem, that's by the time of the Roman period, Judaism is, is monotheistic. Um, one of the interesting developments of Christianity is that it reincorporates mythologies from the greater Roman and Greek milieu into its, its new religion. Whereas, because if you look around, for example, the ancient Near East, there are different, different religions that celebrate a dying and reborn God. For example, can you tell me what they are? Mithras. Mithras, yeah. Mithras where was that? Some of the sort of Egyptian mystery cults. and yeah. Osiris, uh, but also in Greek mythology. Dionysus. Yes. Dionysus. Uh, is he the one who dies and is reborn? No. No, he's kind of likes to drink. I know yeah, who Dionysus is. There's the wine. The wine. No, 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 no. But the Mithras. Mithras is, is, and they all have um, initiation rites as well. I mean, there's all these parallels to Christianity that seem to be 
shocking that Christianity seems to absorb these dying, rising God cults Motifs. of the Mediterranean. Right. It might be fair to generalize and say one of the things Christ- happens to early Christianity as it breaks away from Judaism and becomes more of a... Remember, the Gospels are written in Greek and becomes more of the Greek and Latin-speaking world is where it, where it really fertilizes and grows, uh, is that it incorporates some of the mythic motifs. Uh, is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, that it's, it's a, a fair thing to say. Sometimes it gets, yeah. I think it gets stretched a little bit too far, but that's definitely, I think, going on. Um, where you see more Greek influence, both in Hebrew and Christian scriptures, is more in the sort of Hellenizing, Platonizing, you know, it's, it's sort of Hellenistic, Platonic influence as opposed to multiple gods kind of influence. So one of the books that makes it into the Christian Apocrypha or intertestamental books is the Wisdom of Solomon, um, which doesn't make it into the Hebrew canon. And in a lot of ways, that's um, Jewish story, history being interpreted through uh, Greek thought categories. That moves over into Christianity. Uh, Jesus is interpreted as the Lagos, this Greek concept of Lagos, which was a sort of rational ordering principle behind the universe. And um, it's translated word in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was made flesh. It's actually this Greek word logos, which comes from Greek philosophy, Stoic philosophy. So those streams were making their way into Christian and Jewish thought. But, but the polytheistic streams, perhaps not so much. Not so much. much. You get, you get right. like Sophia, wisdom in Hebrew scriptures, who is actually very much like logos in Christian scripture. Are you familiar with the with Sophia, the figure of wisdom in Hebrew scripture? It would appear that uh, Torah becomes personified in some of the books of the Bible. This idea of a feminine characteristic that is, as it were, God's consort through which the world is created. Um, this Proverbs eight. Huh? Proverbs eight. Yeah, yeah. So what was your other question, She was with God at the beginning. She was God's handmaid. She served in the work of creation. And then Christians actually interpret Jesus in terms of Sophia and see him as the incarnation or embodiment of wisdom from the Hebrew scriptures. I think it's fair to say, though, that that from what I've read about first century Roman Empire, there were many people who told the stories of the gods but didn't actually venerate them anymore. And there was, it was a time of searching among the cosmopolitan Roman Empire who, who uh, didn't take the stories literally. And they were seeking and found, both in early Christianity and early Judaism, something that they felt was more ancient, went deeper, went to the source in a way that uh, there were many, many people interested. One of the reasons that Rome needed to well, the rebellion of the Jews was because the Jews had grown to be a very influential and popular um, stream in the Roman Empire. And it wasn't just Jerusalem. That when the rebellion began in Jerusalem, it spread all around the Mediterranean to wherever there was large Jewish communities who wanted to throw off the yoke of Rome. So uh, I guess that's I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but... Is, is that similar to what Pharaoh said? That they're, they're growing too fast, they're going to be a threat, <laughs> be a threat to us, and then that he starts killing the boy babies? Very similar to Okay, so I would say... So we have the story of Pharaoh 
as the classic tyrant. And the mechanics of political oppression are the same no matter where you go, whenever in history. Um, the, in order to maintain power, the tyrant figures out ways to suppress, depopulate, transfer, oppress, anything they can do to maintain control of the people. And so the, the Pharaoh story is certainly a template. Um, and different emperors, well, so that's a whole other topic. Um, what I wanted, to, oh, what was your second question? It was about these are the books that made it into the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament, but from what I understand, there's a whole bunch of books that didn't make it in because it took the power away from the church and gave it to the people. To Not the people, okay. other people. <laughs> uh, in other words, they're not the church and the people. There are competing streams of folks claiming the mantle of the inheritors of this of the of Jesus's teachings, right? So this is all political. If there are if there are those who have their own gospels, but when the church consolidates, they were on the outs. Their books were considered heretical. It's Within Christian tradition, the way the canon was formed, uh, we often imagine that there was some kind of you know, council where they sat down with a big checklist of books and said, not that one, this one, not that one. It was a lot simpler than that. The books that were most widely used and recognized and circulated within the early Christian communion, community became the, the ones that made it into canon. Um, the four Gospels were widely circulated, widely accepted, and understood to be uh, the earliest ones that we were in possession of. Um, other gospel accounts tended to belong to smaller groups, fringier groups, uh, and they kind of fell away. There was an attempt to kind of shore up the canon once it had sort of been determined. It was sort of like what was most popularly used got a stamp of approval, and then other things were kind of destroyed or wiped out or just fell out of circulation. Um, but that's more how it happened historically. It was just, these are what people are mostly reading. This is what's mostly accepted and recognized, rather than a kind of you know, political game was played. Well, and I would take a different point of view on that, uh, based on my somewhat jaundiced view of human uh, behavior, uh, which is that, and I'm not saying this exclusively about the framers of the, of the uh, Christian New Testament. New Testament. It's like the folks who could pull the strings, pulled the strings, right. you know? Right. And if you weren't on the ins, you were on the outs. And, you know, that's how movements consolidate and that's how political movements grow. And that's how, you know, so I don't think it's like, it wasn't a conspiracy. Right, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. There wasn't a great conspiracy theory. There were texts that were used by a majority. And so, yes, a, majority, a minority got suppressed. Um, but it wasn't like people in a back room, you know, making lists. Um, but there were texts that were eventually suppressed. Did that ever turn into anything else? The suppressed books? Well, a lot, of, a lot of these texts are still available, and you can go check them out at a library. Um, and they're certainly worthy of study and shed light on the diversity within early Christianity and, and, and right. Judaism. What's known as the intertestamental literature which are lots of books that were written in the 2nd century BCE, the 1st century BCE, after the Hebrew Bible had been like closed, 
they, they weren't like taken out of circulation. They just weren't part of the Torah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. We we like in St. Gregory's, we've been doing a study on one of the early Christian texts called the Gospel of Thomas, which was an early collection of sayings of Jesus, not a narrative gospel, but just a sayings collection. Yeah. Um, so so they they are studied. In, in they're not usually given the same status. You know, they're not canonical. But right in rabbinical school, we had a course on the apocrypha, the the intermediate book, because they want us to know what they were. <laughs> even though we don't study them all the time. Now, I know Gabriel had a question, but we're almost out of time, and I want to leave us with this metaphor again, uh, which we can pick up next time, which is that with the destruction of the religious center, the center of gravity, the place where God dwelt, the holy temple, uh, the mountain that connects heaven and earth, the place where all, peop- all Jews stream to, in order to uh, be one with their people and their God. Gone. Not only gone, but within 50 years after that, after there was another rebellion, uh, it was turned into a garbage heap intentionally by the Romans, and Jews were forbidden to go up there. Right? Uh, I mean, like, okay? I'd like, try to pull the heart out of it. Like, those, the Romans were, this was a horrible, <coughs> this was an incredible rebellion. And the Romans were... The Romans were the Romans. They weren't just angry. They wanted to be in charge. So they were going to do whatever it took. Um, Christianity is one response to reframing the heritage that they were claiming. Remember, all the prophets are prophesying this path for them. Rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism that we ultimately inherit, is another response to how do we keep our tradition coherent and alive in the wake of having it, you know, having it been destroyed, the centerpiece of our religious life. And I still want to talk about it. We'll talk about it next week. Well, and one of the radical things that, one of the radical divergences is one tradition tries to maintain itself um, uh, ethnically, and then one decides to say, we'll drop the ethnic component. And so that makes them, you know, go in very divergent directions. That is a really nice way of putting it. Yes, the Ju- Jewish, the, the, what we think of ourselves as Jews is that we never, we never abandoned, despite this destruction, our sense of shared peoplehood and uh, devotion to returning to our homeland from having been thrust into exile. And Christianity cultivates a sense of shared peoplehood, but the peoplehood isn't rooted in ethnicity any longer. It's blood Right, a bloodline. For the Jews? Yes. Yes, a bloodline. But not strictly a bloodline because you... Not could, strictly. But, but yes, it retains that. That's correct, Bob. No, no the other divergence that I found interesting to hang on is the people of the book and the people of the person. Ah, person. Uh, yes, we should explore that more. I think that's really interesting. I know, let's pick it up there. Yeah, that's and it's it is a, you know Christianity it's it's all centered around this one person whereas in Judaism you have Abraham and Moses and you know you have well what do we have that. behind the doors the Torah the, this is the best image what do we have behind the doors in the most sacred place in our in our synagogue we have the book the book right with our stories right and our law and that's what we venerate and we use it as our connecting point to the divine. If you go into the, what's it called? The, the, tabernacle. the tabernacle. Or the ombre tabernacle is the easier word. And you find the bread 
and the wine. And that's, Symbolic, that's the body. That's the body, the and, body blood. and blood of the person, yeah. of the person yeah. who is the sacrifice mm-hmm. yes. to God that saves us now that we can no longer Make offer sacrifices sacrifice. in the temple. Um, are we going to talk about anti-Semitism? Yeah, yeah, we need what? to definitely go deeply into that. What's anti-Semitism? Yeah, we're going to talk about anti-Semitism. On but December 3rd. We're not going to talk about anti-Semitism for a while. Because, uh, then I won't ask about it. Right, anti-Semitism is a product of a moment in history right. when Christianity stops being a persecuted minority and becomes the, the official... It was just yeah. constant. Right, we're going to get to that. But I want to... So if you don't mind, next time... Let's pursue these metaphors a little further, and then we'll go into our subject, which is what can we know about the historical Jesus? And what I want to do is, you know, we're making this up as we go along, so if you have comments or thoughts or questions you want to share, please do, because uh, uh, that'll help us stay on track. So when did the Jews stop proselytizing? Uh, that comes along with uh, when empire uh, starts suppressing them. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.